0: Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Time is moving swiftly. Here we are halfway through the year, but... Uh, As always, there's no shortage of uh, timely things to discuss today.
1: Certainly not, because June is a month of celebrations. You know, James Russell Lowell in his poem, The Vision of Sir Launfell, asked the question, what is so rare as a day in June? Well, there's a clear answer to that. A day in February is more rare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to agree. One day more rare, but... What he meant was how beautiful it was. And then the pepper come, perfect days, he said. But we have several days that we should be aware of here. And one of them is June 6th, which we celebrate today as D Day. And what D Day is, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But first of all, what happened on D Day? Well, I'm going to be reading a little bit here and perhaps reading partially from the History Channel, as they describe what was going on, D-Day was the name given to the June 6, 1944 invasion of the beaches at Normandy in northern France by troops from the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, and other countries during World War II. Now, we might ask the question here because if you watch Jesse Waters sometimes and Waters' world as he's out there talking to people, they don't know what Memorial Day is all about. It's for hot dogs and They might ask, World War II, what was that all about? Why were we invading France? Was France the enemy? Well, it had been, but not at this time. So what was going on at this time? Well, France at this time was occupied by the armies of Nazi Germany and the amphibious assault, that is Land and Air Assault, codenamed Operation Overlord, landed some 150,000 Allied soldiers on the beaches of Normandy by the end of the day. In other words, we're starting to turn the tide here, and the Allies, the Allies here primarily, the ones that are fighting here at D-Day and on the beaches of Normandy are from the United States, Britain, and Canada, and of course, other the United Kingdom countries, but anyway, They landed some 160,000 or 56,000 Allied soldiers on the beaches of Normandy by the end of the day. They were successful in taking the beach. However, by the end of the day, some 4,000 Allied troops were killed by German soldiers who were defending the beaches. They had occupied it, and so they were defending, although it wasn't their territory. At the time, the D Day invasion was the largest naval, air, and land operation in history and within a few days about 326,000 troops and more than 50,000 vehicles and some 100,000 tons of equipment had landed. By August 1944, all of northern France had been liberated from the National Socialists or Nazis and in spring of 1945, the Allies had defeated the Germans. Historians often refer to D-Day as the beginning of the end of World War II. After World War II began, Germany invaded and occupied northwestern France beginning in May 1940. The Americans entered the war in December 1941, and by 1942, they and the British, who had been evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk in May 1940, after being cut off by the Germans in the Battle of France, were considering the possibility of a major Allied invasion across the English Channel. The following year, Allied plans for a cross-channel invasion began to ramp up. In November 1943, Adolf Hitler, who was aware of the threat of an invasion of France's northern coast, put Erwin Rommel, possibly the greatest of the German generals in this war, and possibly the most honorable of them as well, in charge of spearheading defense operations in the region, even though the Germans didn't know exactly where the Allies would strike. Hitler Hitler charged Rommel with finishing the Atlantic Wall, a 2,400-mile fortification of bunkers, landmines, and beach and water obstacles. In January 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower was appointed commander of Operation Overlord. In the month and weeks before D-Day, the Allies carried out a massive deception operation, intending to make the Germans think the main invasion target was Pas-de-Calais, the narrowest point between Britain and France. Deception is an essential part of war, just like it's a central part of basketball or football or other competitive sports. It's essential in martial arts. If your opponent can predict your actions, you're going to lose. In addition, they led the Germans to believe that Normandy and other locations were also potential invasion targets. Many tactics were used to carry out the deception, including fake equipment, a phantom army commanded by George Patton and supposedly based in England, double agents, and fraudulent radio transactions. Eisenhower selected June 5th, 1944, as the date for the invasion. However, bad weather on the days leading up to the operation caused it to be delayed for hours. On the morning of June 5th, after his meteorologist predicted improved conditions for the following day, Eisenhower gave the go-ahead. He told the troops, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Later that day, more than 5,000 ships and landing craft carrying troops and supplies left England for the trip across the Channel to France, while more than 11,000 aircraft were mobilized to provide air support and cover for the invasion. By dawn on June 6th, thousands of paratroopers and glider troops were already on the ground behind enemy lines, securing bridges and exit roads. The amphibious invasions began at 6.30 a.m. The British and Canadians overcame light opposition to capture beaches codenamed Gold, Juno, and Sword, as did the Americans at Utah Beach. Utah or U.S. forces faced heavy resistance at Omaha Beach, where there were over 2,000 American casualties. However, by day's end, approximately 156,000 Allied troops had successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. According to some estimates, more than 4,000 Allied troops lost their lives in the D-Day invasion, with thousands more wounded or missing. Less than a week later, on June 11th, the beaches were fully secured, and over 326,000 troops, more than 50,000 vehicles, Some 100,000 tons of equipment had landed on Normandy. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion in the ranks and the absence of the celebrated commander Rommel, who was away on leave. At first, Hitler, believing the invasion was a feint designed to distract the Germans from a coming attack north of the Seine, refused to release nearby divisions to join the attack. Reinforcements had to be called from further afield, causing delays. He also hesitated in calling for armored divisions to help in the defense. All this because he believed the deceptions that it was going to take place elsewhere. Moreover, the Germans were hampered by effective Allied air support, which took out many key bridges and forced the Germans to take long detours, as well as by efficient Allied naval support, which helped protect advanced Allied troops. In the ensuing weeks, the Allies fought their way across the Normandy countryside in the face of determined German resistance. One thing you certainly have to say for Germany is they have always been valiant warriors, as well as a dense landscape of marches and hedgerows. By the end of June, the Allies had seized the essential port of Cherbourg, landed approximately 850,000 men and 150,000 vehicles in. Normandy, and were poised to continue their march across France. By the end of August 1944, the Allies had reached the Seine River, Paris was liberated, and the Germans had been removed from northwestern France, effectively concluding the Battle of Normandy. The Allied forces then prepared to enter Germany, where they would meet up with Soviet troops moving from the east. And this is, of course, strange that we of the Soviets would be allies, but They both had a mutual enemy in Nazism, even though communism and Nazism are not as different as many people think it is. But at any rate, we were willing to accept the help from the Russians wherever we could get it. The Normandy invasion began to turn the tide against the Nazis. I suggest it was actually starting to turn before the Normandy invasion began. A significant psychological blow had also prevented Hitler from sending troops from France to build up his eastern front against the advancing Soviets. The following spring, on May 8th of 1945, the Allies formally accepted the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany. Hitler had committed suicide a week earlier, on April 30th. Well, call it D-Day. What is D-Day? What does it stand for? Well, I'll suggest something else in regard to this, and this is from Today I Found Out, a column by Sarah Stone this time. The Battle of Normandy, also known as D-Day, started on June 6, 1944, and was the beginning of the major invasion of German-occupied Western Europe during World War II. But why was it called D-Day? You might at first be inclined to think the abbreviation is similar to V-Day, Victory Day. Indeed, one commonly touted explanation given for the meaning of D&D Day is that it stands for Designated Day. Others claim it stands for Decision Day, Debarkation Day, or even Deliverance Day. Even General Dwight Eisenhower, or at least his assistant, weighed in when Eisenhower received a letter asking for an explanation of the meaning of D-Day. His executive assistant wrote back stating, D-Day was a shortened version of Departed Day, or some have called it Departure Day. General Eisenhower helped Planet, so that should mean case closed, right? However, it turns out most historians think not, and indeed the evidence at hand doesn't seem to support Eisenhower's, or perhaps just his assistant's claim. Hence, the true meaning can be found long before World War II in a U.S. Army field order dating September 7th, 1918. That order stated that, this is in regard to World War I, of course, the First Army will attack at H hour on D-Day with the object of forcing the evacuation of the Saint-Mihil salient. In that context, and with numerous combat operations that followed over the years, D-Day referred to the day on which a combat attack would occur with H hour, likewise referring to the hour when the attack is scheduled to happen. Thus, D-Day is just a placeholder or a variable for the actual date, and probably originally was meant to stand for day or date, if anything, if the associated H hour is any indication. The use of D-Day allows military personnel to easily plan for a combat mission ahead of time without knowing the exact date that it will occur. Given that planning for the most famous of all D-Days in June of 1944 started way back in 1943, and that due to factors like optimal tides, Only a few days in a given month were suitable for the launch of the invasion. Trying to fix a firm date in the planning process was pointless, even close to the time of the attack. In fact, as we noted earlier, the original set date was June 5th. But bad weather at the last minute forced a day delay. By simply assigning the attack to occur D-Day, it solved this issue and had the side benefit of keeping the date of the attack secret as long as possible, just one of the many methods of deception the military employed to try to confuse the German brass with regard to the pending evasion. As to handling the pre-day preparations and the plans for after, adding a plus or minus sign with a number after D was used, for example, D minus one would indicate the day before the operation occurring, while well, D plus three would mean three days after the operation. In this way, the plans could be easily overlaid onto a calendar when the military leadership decided on the day of the attack. If the day needed to be switched to the last minute, it was then also easy enough to calibrate the plan to a new date. As alluded to, the D-Day that occurred on June 6, 1944, was not the only D-Day during World War II, and certainly not the last, as this method of planning for military operations continues to this day. Of course, because the D-Day Battle of Normandy was and continues to be the most famous of all, given that designation, it seems most likely in the foreseeable future that it will be usurped in people's minds when someone mentioned D-Day, despite the military continuing to occasionally use this designation. Here's just a few bonus facts that people might be interested in about D-Day. Do you remember Star Trek and Scotty and Star and Trek? Well, actor James Doohan, who played Scotty there in Star Trek, fought on D-Day. He was a lieutenant with the Royal Canadian Artillery. He was also shot six times that day in the process of becoming one of the few individuals who could rightly claim that smoking saved his life. Two V-Days occurred during World War II, V-E Day and V-J Day. V-E Day stands for Victory in Europe Day, which occurred on May 8, 1945, when the German army offered a complete and unconditional surrender to Allied forces. However, the German surrender only entered the war in Europe. The Allies continued to battle the Japanese in the Pacific until V-J Day at the end of the summer. That said, V-J Day really wasn't a single day, two days in August and one day in September often received that distinction. August 14th and August 15th are often referred to as V-J Day because the Allies announced Japan's surrender on August 14. However, it wasn't until September second that Japan's formal, formal surrender occurred aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, which is why that day is also commonly called B.J. Day. Another interesting fact, the oldest soldier to storm the beaches at Normandy in that first wave of troops was Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., the 56-year-old son of U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt happened to be the only general in the first wave, and the only general who served with his son, who was also fighting there at Normandy. Roosevelt, by the way, Thor Theodore Jr., I believe also received the Medal of Honor for his actions there at Normandy. But also, as I understand it, he also died of heart trouble just a few weeks later. The land craft vehicle personal ships used during D-Day, the land soldiers on the beaches, were originally designated for use in Louisiana swamps, where the flat bottom of the boat prevented it from getting caught in the shallow waters. Designated by lumber businessman and former Nebraska National Guard Infantry Officer Andrew Higgins, The shallow boat went for several years without attracting much attention to the US government until World War II. Higgins Company ultimately produced over 20,000 of the boats for the United States during the war. Being able to function in the swamps meant that it could get closest to shore without coming ashore and so less distance to have to walk to shore from the boat. Well, that was just couple of days ago, Tuesday, June 6th, the day that we know in history as D-Day. But now we've got another day coming up and that's gonna be next Wednesday, June 14th, which is Flag Day. So, So what do we know about Flag Day and what's the purpose of Flag Day? Well, Flag Day was first recognized way, way back in the 1700s, but it wasn't made official till a long time later. But what is the history of Flag Day? Well, the day that we celebrate is the day that, supposedly at least, three men at the designation of Congress came to Betsy Ross in 1777 and gave her a design for The United States flag, and asked her if she, as a seamstress, would be able to prepare a flag. Is that a history or is that a legend? Did she or didn't she? Well, I'll just read you what an account from the Betsy Ross House in Philadelphia says about it. Although Betsy Ross lived a life worthy of
0: recognition,
1: It is the legend of Betsy sewing the first American flag that earned her a place in our hearts and in history. Over the last century, there have been some debate about whether she did or didn't sew those first stars and stripes. So let's take a look at what we really know. It was Betsy's grandson, William Canby, who first told the story in a speech made to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania back in 1870. Canby and other members of Betsy's family signed sworn affidavits, stating that it was Betsy herself who told them the story of the making of the flag. According to the oral history, in 1776, three men, none other than George Washington, Robert Morris, and George Ross, visited Betsy Ross in her upholstery shop. After she escorted them to her parlor, where they could meet in private. Washington showed Betsy a sketch of a flag with 13 red and white stripes and 13 six-pointed stars, of course, in a circle. When Washington asked Betsy if she could make the flag, Betsy responded, I do not know, but I'll try. So this line has been used in the sworn statements of many of Betsy's family members suggesting it is a direct quote from Betsy. And as the story goes, Betsy suggested changing the stars to five points rather than six, and with just one snip of her scissors showed them how to do it. With that, they all agreed to change the flag to five-pointed stars. Despite the absence of written records to prove the story, there is mounting evidence leading historians to believe that the legend could be true. George Ross, a member of the flag committee, was the uncle of Betsy's late husband, John. This could be one reason why Betsy was chosen to make the first flag. Another uncle-in-law, George Reed, was a delegate from Delaware and a member of the Marine Committee with Robert Morris. Since making the flag was an act of treason, it is significant that these men would know of her allegiance to the revolutionary cause. Historians at Mount Vernon recently discovered documents that showed Betsy and John Ross made bed hangings for George Washington in 1774. This indicates that Washington would have been familiar with her and the quality of her work. It was common for upholsterers to take up other forms of work during wartime because they were no longer getting their regular upholstery work, many upholsterers earned money by making tents, uniforms, and flags for the soldiers. On May 19, 1777, Betsy Ross was paid a large sum of money from the Pennsylvania State Navy Board for making flags. And on June 14, 1777, Congress adopted the Stars and Stripes as our official national flag. Coincidence? Well, more later.
0: to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are talking with Colonel John Eidsmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law. You might not have known this, but there are some rather significant dates that we celebrate in the month of June. And Colonel, you have uh, hit on two of them, very important, D-Day as well as Flag Day. I understand uh, there are probably a couple more that we should be aware of.
1: Well, these are the main ones. You know, we also had several in May. We had Armed Forces Day. We had... Memorial Day, and of course all of May was Military Appreciation Month, although a lot of people were never made aware of it. But continuing with Bessie Ross, Bessie continued to make flags for over 50 years, many of which were through government contracts. Many receipts exist for her work from the first two decades of the 19th century, the 1800s. For example, in 1811, Bessie made over 50 garrison flags for the U.S. arsenal on the Schuylkill River. In the 18th century, that is the 1700s, flags were not as revered as they are today. The flag had not yet become a symbol of liberty or patriotism. It was more frequently regarded as a military tool, like a tent or a uniform. Betsy Ross told her children and grandchildren the legendary story, not because she had made the first flag, which was probably somewhat insignificant in her mind, but because George Washington, a great man who would later become the first president of the United States, visited her home and asked her to make something for him. So whether you choose to believe Betsy Ross made the first flag, there is no doubt that she was a prominent early American flag maker who stitched flags for the federal government for more than 50 years. And I would certainly say that there is good reason, from what we've just seen, to believe that Betsy Ross did, in fact, make that first flag, and I've seen really no evidence to dispute it, although it seems like there is just a tendency of people, scholars in the academic community especially, that they would like to debunk anything they can about history. In fact, it seems that one of the best ways to become a reputed scholar, to earn your Ph.D. is to write a dissertation in which you prove that what historians have always believed about something is false and I, this upstart Ph.D. candidate, have discovered the truth and so on. That seems to be a tendency and I kind of enjoy debunking the Ph.D. candidates and proving that the conventional wisdom is true. Anyway, when we look to D-Day or their Flag Day itself, we know that Flag Day was celebrated at various times of year, but particularly on June 14th throughout the 1800s. But it received a great deal of attention in 1877. And it's at this time that Dr. Edward Brooks, who was the superintendent of Philadelphia schools, waved the banner for the celebration of America's flag And newspapers of that day report that Arch Street there in Philadelphia was adorned in swaths of the red, white, and blue. Local schoolchildren flocked to the Betsy Ross house, where they toured the homes, sang songs, and were each given a small commemorative flag. And by the early 20th century, festivities amped up, combining the somber prayer services, history talks, speeches and poetry readings with celebrations, parades, musical presentations, flag-raising ceremonies, appearances by Fife and Drum Corps, and finally, during World War II, I'm sorry, World War I, Woodrow Wilson designated June 14th as Flag Day. And it's a day we should honor today. I think it's especially significant that the flag has, has had historic significance. For example, We go back to Israel as Israel is wandering in the wilderness. Each of the tribes of Israel had their own flag or standard and some scholars have tried to recreate what the symbols on those flags of the 12 tribes would have been. Flag by which each tribe would know this is where we are, this is the standard we follow and as we are marching through the wilderness, this is our place in the march following the flag of our tribe. Roman legions of course had their standards and they believed they had divine powers and each legion had its own standard like this. Flags are used in the military as symbols so troops in battle will know where they're to rally and so on. But probably more in the latter 1800s and the 1900s, the flag has become a symbol of the nation itself. And I think it is very sad that we see so many cases today of desecration of the flag. Some say that flag desecration should be a crime and there are proposals to amend the Constitution to make it a crime. It used to be a crime, but then in the 1980s and 90s, a couple of Supreme Court decisions, Texas versus Johnson, for example, held that the First Amendment a 5 4 decision held that the First Amendment protects the desecration of the flag as free speech. And I could see merits and demerits for that decision, but nevertheless, I deplore what the desecration of the flag is. Justice William Brennan, who wrote the opinion of that case, Texas versus Johnson, in which he had some very strong dissents, but he said in the opinion that it is protected speech under the first amendment and that for that reason he said the best remedy for flag desecration is not suppressing it but speech of our own the best remedy for bad speech or villainous speech for false speech is true speech virtuous speech correct speech in other words we correct falsehoods by stating the truth and we correct flag desecration by honoring the flag but i think it's especially sad today that this symbol which was supposed to stand not for one side or the other not for one party not for the left not for the right but for the nation as a whole it was supposed to be a symbol of unity of the nation nevertheless the flag and Recent years has become a divisive symbol, so much so that in some places, especially in California, in some California public schools, the wearing of the American flag symbols has been banned. Why? Because it might be divisive, because it might offend some. It was okay in some of those same schools to wear a symbol of the flag of Mexico, but not to wear a symbol of the flag of the United States. That is absolutely absurd. And it is horrible. I emphasize again, and I know I've said this in this program before, that no nation can long survive if it teaches its children to hate their ancestors and to be ashamed of their, of their heritage. And that's exactly
0: what we are doing in America today. I have an example for you, Colonel, and maybe you are aware of this. Um, yes, just please, just Ryan, within the right last up. in the last couple of weeks, there was a, a children's choir, and I guess a pretty renowned children's choir, touring the United States Capitol. And as they got into, I guess un- under the rotunda, it was you know they were standing there in that majestic setting, and they began to sing the national anthem. And of course, with the acoustics and everything, you know everybody stopped and just was was watching and listening, except for the Capitol police who came by and told them. You cannot do that, and they, they made them stop right there. Nope, you don't even get to finish the song, because they said we were worried that s- some people may find that offensive. So as you're as you're talking about the flag being an offensive symbol, there's our national anthem potentially as an offensive symbol, and and I have to ask this. I know you have a military background. When when an enemy has been conquered. Isn't it customary to replace their flag with the flag of whoever won and uh, you know their national anthem <laughs> would be uh, basically replaced with uh, whoever whoever the winner was because uh, it sure feels it feels like like in some ways we're we're acting like a conquered nation.
1: Yes, that is very common. Although usually the flag of the conquered nation is still treated with respect. It will be furled, but referred respectfully, but yes, that has been a common practice, and this is taking place in public schools in California, that is horrible, this is taking place right in the United States Capitol, that is even more incredible, and even more horrible, and, well, I think I have some other reasons for questioning the effectiveness of the Capitol Police, in fact, I've heard them referred to as the Keystone Cops of the law enforcement profession, but... At any read that? I'm sure there are some good ones too, but that is, I was going to say sad, but it's more than sad. It is absolutely outrageous. But anyway, we, we look to these symbols, and we talk about the United States of America. We talk about our country, and again, you mentioned the military. I'll give you an example out of the military that... Uh, they, young man, he was of a LDS background, as a matter of fact. And anyway, he enlisted in the Army, and during basic training, you know, they have the hazing of cadets sometimes, they're hazing of these new recruits, and some of that is to build up their strength. If you can't handle a little hazing, what are you going to do in a real war or real captivity? But anyway, after they'd done a few things like, Sing Yankee Doodle, things like that, come in, this lieutenant there who's in charge is telling or is telling these troops, making them do things, came to this young LDS troop and said, sing the National Anthem. What he did not know, this kid had performed as an opera singer. And he began to sing the National Anthem after a couple of bars of it, the... I believe he was actually a captain, not a lieutenant, but the commander there turned and went to attention, faced the flag and gave a salute, as did the rest of the platoon, and he finished singing the anthem. Totally unanticipated by the captain, but at least he respected the way the anthem was sung when he heard it. I have to say one thing, and I don't. I know some people probably do this with the best of motives, but I certainly prefer hearing the national anthem sung the way it was written. Without all these frills and slide notes and all these things that modern singers think they have to put into it, I prefer hearing it as it was written. Do you have any thoughts about that yourself, Brian?
0: No, I've become more of a traditionalist as I get older. I, I can appreciate their talent, but there are some things just like you wouldn't want to embellish the Lord's Prayer you know, by adding, you know, some, you know, some neat rhyme or something like that. Um, it, it, it needs to be appreciated for what it is, not uh, not necessarily co-opted.
1: Absolutely. But we're going to get into an issue here, and I don't have time to discuss this. We have, what, about uh, 10 minutes left? Yes. I don't think I really have time to go into this as I had intended to. I was going to talk about the relationship of the two kingdoms, church and state, to one another, and give you ten basic points about these two kingdoms, but I'll simply say for right now that we have a case here that the Foundation has filed with the U.S. Supreme Court. I've mentioned this case before, I'm just going to review it a little bit, because it is a very significant case, and we have gotten in two amicus briefs from other organizations. Normally we filed amicus briefs for them. This time, others have filed them for us. One is from the Phyllis Schlafly's Eagles group and written by the son of Phyllis Schlafly, Andy Schlafly, supporting us. The other is by a very fine Life and Liberty Center in North Carolina, a third coming in from an Alabama group today, but Anyway, the case involves the issue of church and state. And back during the days of the COVID threat, when we had governors shutting down churches, Governor John Bell Edwards of Louisiana issued an order that all churches have to be closed if they have more than 10 people in attendance. And he issued no similar order that Walmart was limited to 10 shoppers, or other establishments had similar limits. This was directed simply at churches. And Pastor Tony Spell, Louisiana pastor of a church with about 2,000 members, decided, I must obey God rather than men, based on Acts 5.29. And so, he continued to hold services. He was charged with several misdemeanor offenses and placed in leg irons and arrested. The case took twofold defense. One was a defense actually, one was an offense. And for these, he went to our organization, the Foundation for Moral Law. If you want to find out more about us, you can simply go to wwwmorallaw 2 lsorg Anything close to that, you'll bring us up. But anyway, so he asked us to conduct the defense and we did so on two fronts. First of all, in state court, defending against the criminal charges, we took the matter up to the Louisiana Supreme Court. The Louisiana Supreme Court said that the governor had exceeded his authority in issuing that order and struck it down. Couple of reasons for this. One was that it discriminated against churches and was not treating churches equally with other organizations. As I say, Walmart was not restricted to 10 shoppers and so on. But anyway, besides that, the court noted that the Louisiana Emergency Powers Act contains a provision, that nothing in this act empowers the governor to violate the rights of people under the (coughs) U.S. and Louisiana constitutions. So they threw out the criminal charges. But we wanted to go farther on this because the fact is we're not simply seeking equal treatment with other organizations. The Constitution doesn't provide for equal treatment. Rather, when we read in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, We don't see anything about free exercise of shopping, or free exercise of athletics, or free exercise of business. We see free exercise of religion. And so religion, under the Constitution, is not in an equal place with other activities. Religion is in a preferred place. Not only that, but when the framers said there was to be no establishment of religion, what did they mean by that? Well, we looked at the separation of church and state that existed in Old Testament Israel where church and state are separate kingdoms. You have the civil authorities, the kings coming out of the tribe of Judah. You have the religious authority, the priests coming out of the tribe of Levi, separate offices and separate functions, but both under the law of God and both under the authority of God. You have Christ saying to the Pharisees when they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. In other words, recognizing that Caesar has authority, but also recognizing that there is another jurisdiction that is beyond Caesar. And then throughout the early church and the medieval period, where we see that Kings do not regulate the church, and the church does not regulate the state. Two kingdoms. Now, they interfere with each other sometimes in ways that are wrongful, but you don't see kings becoming popes. And you don't see popes becoming kings until King Henry VIII in the 1500s in England. In England, you have the king as the head of the Church of England. That's what the framers came over here to get away from. And when they said no establishment of religion, that's what they were trying to protect against. Now you also look that these framers in the 1700s and the settlers who established these colonies in the 1600s came out of the backdrop of the Reformation. And in the Reformation, we saw Luther and Calvin and the other reformers talking about the two kingdoms, church and state, how these two kingdoms relate to one another, and how they are separate jurisdictions, how they must be kept forever distinct. Not that they don't complement one another, but the idea that God has established these two kingdoms, and they weren't to be in opposition to one another. In fact, Luther would have said and Calvin would have agreed that they benefit one another. When the state is doing its job properly, that is, when the state is preserving law and order and defending the nation and protecting individual rights, when the state does this, it makes it easier for the church to do its job. The church's job is preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God, teaching people the way of salvation, teaching people the good moral character that makes people good, responsible citizens. When the church is doing its job properly and preaching the word, it enables the state to do its job better. The state can govern much better when it has a society of law-abiding citizens. And so they were to be separate kingdoms that complemented one another. Understanding this then, the framers' view was the church and state were separate kingdoms, separate jurisdictions, neither of which had the right to regulate the other. The example that I give is, let us suppose that in Louisiana, Pastor Spell had given an order that all state offices must close. People would stare in wide-eyed amazement. Where do you think you get that authority? That's our point. The state has no more authority to close churches than the church has to close state offices. They are separate jurisdictions. And that's what we've taken this case to the court for. Now we understand when we're dealing with the Supreme Court that they receive about 2,000 cert petitions every year and they can grant only about a hundred of them, that's about as much of the workload as they can do justice to, and so mathematically, the odds of the court granting our petition are about one percent or less. But nevertheless, we think there are reasons that they may grant it and should grant it, and whether they do or not, sometimes you need to bring a case before the attention of the court, sometimes many times, before finally they take note of it and decide we're going to hear this so one way or another this is the issue we are raising with the gorge i'm going to talk more next time about these two kingdoms church and state and how we understand them in today's economy brian do you have any thoughts as we draw to the close of Our broadcast today.
0: No, I'm very grateful for you to be speaking out, though, as you are, and uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like a rant. In in many ways, it feels like um, some of the things that we hold sacred, including our freedom, including our heritage, including the relationship to the author of liberty, uh, for all these things that we enjoy, uh, they, they seem to have been pushed aside, or in some cases, outright thrown off the stage. And replaced with, uh, uh, first it started with some subtle counterfeits. It's no longer subtle. And, and the more I see it, the more I, I have to wonder if it's not, you know, some kind of deliberate deliberate provocation um, rubbing our noses in it to, to show uh, that, uh, you know, we not only reject what came before us, but uh, we ridicule it and, and we're going to embrace its, its complete polar and spiritual opposite. So it's good to be reminded what we stand for. I know there's a lot of people who are feeling, you know, a similar kind of anxiety like I do about this is just not right, but let's remember what, what we're trying to preserve. Let's, let's remember what we are standing for much. I, I think that's a much more productive approach than, than simply, well, here's what I'm against and here's who makes me mad. If that makes sense. Absolutely.
1: It makes sense. And we use that phrase separation of church and state and, if I use that phrase, I'll have many of my Christian conservative friends groan. Oh no, not that again. <laughs> They're groaning, though, at the misuse of this by groups like the American Civil Liberties Union and Freedom from Religion Foundation. I'm half expecting to letter to receive to receive a letter from one of these groups sometime saying that I violated the Constitution because I thought about God or I whistled a Christian hymn as I was walking on a public street. That we object strongly to this abuse of the term separation of church and state, but the true meaning of separation of church and state is something we believe in. I certainly don't want President Biden heading the church, and I don't really want the church running the state, but each has its own role. The church has every right to instruct the state, to teach the state what God's word has to say about issues of government and so on, but we don't dictate to the state and it's entirely appropriate for Christians to run for office. But again, when they do so, they're wearing the hat of the secular kingdom. More on that later.